Welcome to a breath of fresh earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. Whoa there, Rudolph. Oh, oh, oh. Wishing you a very Merry Christmas. Pollution in Delhi, India is a major problem. The situation is aggravated by Delhi's geography. The city is landlocked, and it sits in a kind of a natural bowl surrounded by industrial and agricultural areas. There's no coastal breeze, so the pollution just hovers over the city. Emissions from cars and trucks and even dust from the roadside contributes almost 80% of the particulate matter, that nasty 2.5 that we talk about. And then to make it even worse, once a year at harvest time, farmers across the neighboring states set fire to their fields to clear them for the next season. That's known as stubble burning. I'll have more about that in a minute. Back to Delhi, the Public Works Department installed 23 anti-smog guns throughout the city and 150 water tankers that sprinkle water on the trees, roads, and construction sites all over the city. This year, they've sprayed over 7 million liters of water. We'll talk about a water shortage in India in a minute. So what are they doing? They're spraying water into the air, hoping that it sticks to some of the particulate matter and it falls to the ground, like what rain does. Of course, rain lowers the level of air pollution, but this is just a cheap attempt and a waste of time and money and resources. Fix the damn problem. Don't cover it up with a squirt gun. A big squirt gun, but still, it's just spraying water. The best solution, obviously, would be to reduce the pollution at their source. Yeah, it'll be expensive to fix India's air pollution problem, just like anybody's. But people are dying in huge numbers in India from air pollution. In 2019, more than 1.5 million people died from air pollution. All right, so let's talk about stubble burning. I never even heard that phrase until last year. I thought it had something to do with a man's beard. Stubble burning is when farmers intentionally set fire to the straw stubble that remains after grains like paddy and wheat have been harvested. They burn the stubble instead of plowing it under or collecting it for industrial uses. And of course, that's bad for the environment for two reasons. One, it burns up the nutrients in the ground and lack of biodiversity in the soil we've talked about before. And two, the pollution from the smoke increases emissions of greenhouse gases. And that just contributes to more global warming. In many parts of the country, in order to grow enough crops to feed that enormous population, which right now is second in the world to China, catching up fast, millions of hectares of land is cultivated for food. The migrant workers separate crops like basmati rice by hand. They don't have enough time to clear the fields for the next crop, which is usually wheat sowing season. So instead, the farmers burn the residue left behind. The high court in India passed a law outlawing this process, but farmers feel like they have no choice. Much of the burning happens in the fall and early winter, all over the state, making pollution situation in Delhi even worse. What is needed is a farming revolution, and they need the Indian government to step up and help them out. When population in India grew in the 60s, the agricultural sector couldn't keep up with an increasing demand for labor, so farmers stopped hand harvesting in favor of less labor-intensive methods like the combine harvester. The harvester leaves behind rice stubble, which prevents machines from sowing wheat seeds. So with as little as 10 days between it's time to harvest the rice 
and sow the wheat, farmers turn to stubble burning to quickly remove what's left of the rice crop. So let's imagine you need to hire enough manual laborers to prep 5 million hectares in 10 days to get ready to plant the new crop. That's impossible. The only way to clear the land is to burn the residue. In this case, where there's fire, there's smoke, and it drifts right towards Delhi. Enter new technology like the Happy Cedar, a machine that allows wheat to be sown on top of rice stubble. One of the problems with the Happy Cedar it's expensive, about 2000 American dollars. Many farmers don't have a lot of land, making that too expensive to purchase. Burning the land can be as cheap as $15, and it's done in 24 hours. Stubble burning, of course, doesn't make India's pollution problem worse all 12 months of the year. But during the time when the stubble is on fire, pollution can spike as much as 40% in Delhi and the surrounding communities. I'm not talking about a handful of farmers burning a few hundred acres of land, but up to 10,000 fires throughout the region. Stubble burning is against the law, but finding poor farmers, that's not going to help fix the problem. So why are they picking on the farmers? Well, it's easier to blame a farmer than close down a factory or tell people to stop driving cars. Another possible solution is a product called the Waste Decomposer. It's inexpensive, and stubble spread on an acre of farmland can be decomposed within a month without leaving any toxic fumes. The decomposer contains a plant-friendly fungus, which can benefit the farmers in lots of ways. It gets rid of the stubble. It helps increase the fertility of the soil. It increases the organic carbon in the soil. And lastly, it's been tested to leave no harmful side effects on the crops. In one state in India, the government is providing a 50% subsidy on this decomposer, which allows farmers to buy it at half the regular cost. We'll see how the future unholds for the hardworking farmers in India. When I review the air quality index, India is usually among the worst places in the world. We are running out of water. Oh, no. We're running out of water! It's ironic, on a planet that is 70% water, people don't have enough clean, safe water to drink. But the fresh water on Earth makes up just 3% of the water supply, and less than 1% is available, easily, and the rest is tied up in icebergs, glaciers, and snow caps. Chennai, a city in India with roughly the same population of New York City, almost ran out of water in 2019. The 11 million residents watched three of its four reservoirs in the city run dry. The government used trains to bring in water. The shortage forced many restaurants, hotels, and other businesses to shut down. Chennai sits on the Bay of Bengal in the southeast part of India and has seen tremendous growth in population and and industry. Meanwhile, across India, the groundwater that provides an invaluable buffer between monsoons has been severely depleted and in danger of being lost forever. The fate of over one billion people who live in India rely on unpredictable rains to make sure they have enough water to drink and to bathe and wash clothes and their dishes, even keeping the hospitals running. Climate change and a booming population have maxed out Chennai's water supply. Water is used around the world for production of electricity, but research indicates there won't be enough water in the world to meet the demand in 2040. In most countries, Electricity is the biggest source of water consumption because the power plants need cooling cycles. The only energy systems that do not require cooling cycles, hmm, let's see, how about wind and solar? Yeah, there you go. So one of the primary recommendations by all the researchers is to replace old power systems with more sustainable ones, like wind and solar. Duh. Water scarcity is here to stay. For more information about water scarcity in your country, I found a cool website. It's called Water Scarcity Clock. You can find it on the web at worldwater.io. As I was recording this episode, there are currently more than 2 billion people living in water-scarce areas. 
Oh, it's Father Christmas here. Are you on my naughty or nice list this year? Still time to change that, you know. Ho, ho, come on, Rudolph. It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. There's a new book out. It's great for kids or adults if you want to learn about 10 people from India fighting to save the planet. They're all included in the 2020 book called 10 Indian Champions Who Are Fighting to Save the Planet. The first one is Romulus Whitaker. They call him the Snake Man of India. Romulus Walker has been researching, protecting snakes and crocodiles and busting myths about stereotypes about reptiles. I'm going to try to get all the pronunciations as best I can. I hope I'm doing okay. Paranita Dendikar. Miss Dandekar is trying to protect rivers and bodies of water through her writing and research and acting as a bridge between policymakers, ecologists, scientists, and people. Rohan Arthur studies how climate change affects coral reefs and is bringing the world's attention to what is happening under the water. Vidya Arthrea. Miss Arthrea studies leopards, where they live, and how they're now living among humans in agricultural landscapes and helps spread awareness about living with leopards. Aparajita Dada. Miss Dada ensures a safe space for the brightly colored hornbills and works with indigenous communities. Jay Mazumdar. Jay was the journalist that unearthed the disappearance of tigers in the Sariska Tiger Reserve and makes sure that wildlife stays on the front page of the news. Minal Pathak. Miss Pathak writes reports on climate change that tell the world what our future holds. Rohan Chakravarti. Rohan draws attention to climate change wildlife threats, and the splendors of nature, you got to check out his Instagram account. He's got 125,000 followers. His cartoons are really funny and meaningful. Let's not forget Kavitha Karuganti. Ms. Karugani speaks for the farmers, helps get them better prices and respect for their hard work. She campaigns against genetically modified privatized seeds. Lakshmi Campbell and Daharavi Rocks, it's a band. The band works with Ms. Campbell uses reclaimed plastic in and around Davrari and encourages those working in the recycling world to speak out and find new career and creative options. Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the Week. Congratulations to the Coca-Cola Company. The Atlanta-based beverage giant is the top producer of plastic rubbish making its way into the ocean. This is terrible for wildlife as the plastic particles slip into the food chain. We've talked about this, and we will continue to talk about plastic in the ocean. Coca-Cola markets hundreds of brands of carbonated beverages, water, and juices. They said last year they used 3 million tons of plastic packaging. Ugh, this one hurts. Yeah, I know Coca-Cola isn't a great choice of beverages for us to consume, but I am weak, and I get my rush of caffeine from an ice-cold Diet Coke, not coffee. In 2021, I vow to drink more water. Not in a plastic bottle. You're listening to the best of electronic music. Playing you five decades of the biggest hits. Rebecca, no, no, wrong studio. Try again. Get ready to mash up the place. No, wrong again. 
You're pressing the wrong button. Tune into the best electronic dance music from around the world. The best new music from around the world. Stop! Can't somebody help me? Can't someone on my staff get this right? Sorry. In the mix. In the mix. 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 Thank you, Jill. Thank you for bringing some sanity back to the show. I've now regained control. Izzy, what you got? Number 31. Have you ever heard of Bodie McBoatface? Bodie McBoatface is the name of the British lead boat of the robotic auto-sub long-range class of battery-powered autonomous underwater vehicles and carried on board the research vessel RRS Sir David Attenborough, the eminent zoologist and highly popular broadcaster, and not his brother Richard, who built Jurassic Park for InGen Corp. The name Bodie McBoatface was originally proposed in a March 2016 online poll to name the ship. The ship would eventually be named, as I said, the RRS Sir David Attenborough. Bodie would have to be all right with taking the secondary role as the name of the underwater vehicle. Those Brits. Who in their right mind would ever name something Bodie McBoatface? And don't forget our ace reporter, Wheezy McWeeklung, is taking the week off to get some well-deserved R&R. See, this is what happens when you let the internet decide important things like the name of a boat. Is it a boat or a ship? I still don't know. The New York Times says, This has led to a new internet term called getting boat-faced. It means you've allowed others to deliberately make their choices not in order to foster the greatest societal good, but instead to mess with you. 32. On World Vegan Day this past November 1st, the UK's first permanent vegan butcher shop opened in London and sold out the first day. Rudy's Vegan Butcher offers patrons completely meat and dairy-free selections, including plant-faced pastrami, seitan chicken, sausages, and Christmas turkey rolls. The substitutes are made from soy and wheat protein seitan. Vegetarian, vegan chef, and Rudy's co-founder, Matthew Foster, says, It's all designed to emulate meat. It tastes like meat. It's got to have meat-like texture. Foster and his business and life partner, Rudy Mama, opened the non-traditional butcher shop as an extension of their popular vegan and London's first vegan restaurant, Rudy's Dirty Vegan Diner, back in 2018. The diner reimagines popular American comfort food entirely out of plants. The meat-free butcher shop will also stock ready-made foods like chili non carne, vegan lobster salad, and dairy-free cheese sauces. A vegan diet is one of the most effective ways individuals can reduce their carbon footprint. Global meat production, especially beef and lamb, requires a high amount of carbon emissions and strains natural resources, something meatless alternatives can't avoid. The UK plant-based movement is booming. Sales of plant-based foods grew 40% between 2014 and 2019 to around a billion dollars per year. That number is expected to exceed 1.4 billion by 2024. Number 33. We're going to stay in England for our next story. Lucy Hughes created Marina Techs as a final project at the University of Sussex. Lucy developed an interest in utilizing waste products and looked for our nature for inspiration. How did that conversation start in the house? Mom, I'm interested in utilizing waste products. No, I'm kidding. It's amazing what she did. 
Marina Tex is a versatile material that can be an alternative to plastic in a variety of applications. And get this, it's made from the waste from a fish processing plant. This sounds fishy. Lucy found the fish skins and scales had the most potential locked up in them due to their flexibility and strength enabling proteins. And Marina Tex hopes to market products for single-use packaging. It's really brilliant. I know I kind of sound like I made fun of it, but really, utmost respect. The transparent film packaging will biodegrade in a soil environment. The organic formula does not leach harmful chemicals and it can even be consumed, causing no harm to wildlife or humans. They don't kill any fish to make the product. All the fish components are sourced from waste material from the fishing industry. Marina Tex works only with processing plants that are part of the Sustainable Seafood Coalition. The material is still undergoing research and development. It's not on the shelves yet, but it'll be interesting to watch the progress of this company in the future. So congratulations to Lucy. Well done. Number 34. Last week, I watched a love story on Netflix. This was no ordinary love story. It starred a man unknown to me prior to watching this story, a man named Craig Foster, who started a year-long relationship with a female he met in the South African kelp forest. Not exactly a meet-the-cute story, but in this case, it was the perfect place. The story had all the ingredients you'd expect from this genre. A shy female ignoring the handsome suitor who approached her every day, refusing to ignore her clear signals to stay away. She used her arms to send a clear signal for him to get lost, creep. Eventually, the female learned to trust the man, realizing the respect and admiration he had for her work ethic, her ability to change course in a moment, even transform when life depended on it. The man watched her find the strength to fight off danger with her cunning and courage and emerge even stronger when the threat passed. Their affair grew, and it was kind of cute to see her cuddle up on his chest as they shared their love of the ocean. Of course, like every rom-com, you know the drill. Man gets girl, man does something stupid and loses the girl, and often ends up at an airport ticket counter preaching his everlasting love to get the girl back. The Netflix movie follows the genre to a heart-wrenching conclusion. There is no magical airport scene, only the harsh reality that once an octopus finds a mate and gives birth to twins, or 50,000 babies, nature takes her, well, let's just say nobody ever beats father time. Confused? Don't be. This wasn't the movie Family Man with Nicolas Cage or Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan and You've Got Mail. This story is called My Octopus Teacher, and it's about a free-diving marine scientist named Foster documenting his life with an octopus in a South African kelp forest. I know it sounds kind of strange, but the filming was great and the story was great, and I think you'd enjoy it. And if you ever want to win a bet in a bar, try this one. What animal gives birth just once in their lifetime? The female octopus lays eggs only once in her life. She usually stops eating to care for them and dies either just before or just after they hatch. <laughs> Happy holidays! If you're looking to send an environmental gift to someone this year, why not send them an ebook or a paperback? It's time for a cheap plug for my novels and short story collection. They're available on Amazon under my author name of Richard Friedman. And I'll leave the links in the notes if you want to send your business elsewhere besides Amazon. Escape to Kanemuth was my first climate fiction novel. It describes mankind facing an animal rebellion. There's a big twist at the end, so no spoilers here. You can email me and I'll let you know. The Two Worlds of Billy Callahan followed two years later, and it's the story of a 12-year-old boy who stumbles into a crevasse during an earthquake, finds an ancient orb that locks him in a 50-year coma, all the while replaying the entire life cycle of an alien race on Earth, forced to leave in shame, because they ruined the planet millions of years ago. And now Billy, wide awake, older, and highly motivated, is tasked 
by the teacher living within the orb to warn mankind to stop poisoning the earth a second time, or a similar fate awaits humanity. And lastly, A Climate Carol and Other Cli-Fi Short Stories. My favorite of the 12 stories is the title story, where a rich, arrogant East Coast businessman turned president faces the ghosts of climate past, climate current, and climate yet to come in my version of Dickens' classic tale. Danny Bloom, the man who invented the phrase cli-fi and founder of Cli-Fi Report, said this in his review. When I read it online a few days ago, I was blown away by both the author's storytelling skills and the environmental eco-theme of this 14-page piece. Then he wrote this. I would say that this short story is the best and most important climate theme short story to appear so far in the 21st century and is likely to remain popular over the next 100 Christmases for sure, unquote. Wow, that's like the best review I'll ever get in my entire life, no matter what else I write. Thanks, Mr. Bloom. I would like you to be my agent. You can reach me at rf at richardfriedman.net. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Sheila Watt-Cloutier was born on December 2, 1953, in Canada. Watt-Cloutier has worked on a range of social and environmental issues like pollution and global warming that affect the Inuit. She has received numerous awards and honors, including the Sophie Prize, the Champions of the Earth Award, and Heroes of the Environment. In 2017, she received the Climate Change Award from the Prince Albert of Monaco Foundation. And in 2007, she was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Her 2015 book, The Right to be Cold, is about the effects of climate change on Inuit communities and explores the parallels between safeguarding the Arctic and the survival of the Inuit culture, of which her own background is such an extraordinary example. For the first 10 years of her life, she traveled only by dog team. Miss Watt-Cloutier sums up her work by saying, quote, I do nothing more than remind the world that the Arctic is not a barren land devoid of life, but a rich and majestic land that has supported our resilient culture for millennia. Even though small in number and living far from the corridors of power, it appears that the wisdom of the land strikes a universal chord on a planet where many are searching for sustainability, unquote. Happy birthday to a great scientist. Next week is the end of the year award show. Until then, stay safe, celebrate your holiday season with caution, and as we celebrate the end of 2020 and look forward to a return to a new normal in 2021, I'll remind you that if Galileo was able to speak from his perch up in the moons of Jupiter, he would undoubtedly say, and yet it moves. Good night, old pal. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been A Breath of Fresh Earth. Thanks for listening. 